This is a Triple J podcast. Hello, welcome to another episode of Science with Dr. Carl. Why do some people feel the cold more than others? What state is electricity? And where does all the sweat and bevies and other yucky stuff go after a music festival? I'm Lucy Smith. Let's get into it. Carl, hello. Hello and good morning. And I have got some news of incredibly good news. What is it? That in Australia things are so advanced that um, we actually test for and can fix genetically inherited diseases in a few cases. Now... I don't know about you, I'm not going to try and make you out yourself on TV, on Mm. radio, but I have three genetic diseases. The first one is that I don't have four incisors on the top row of my teeth. I've only got two. So see, I've got that ever so cute gap, aren't I lovely? Yes. Number two, I have little bubbles of fat like pomas in my skin, which my father had and he lost them in the concentration camps, and I've passed them on to my kids, bummer. And thirdly, my shoulder... Blade, the, the shoulder is a complicated thing, made mostly of bone, should be all bone. In my case, there's a genetic thing where it doesn't completely fuse, and I've got incomplete fusion of the right acromial tip, but none of these will kill me or are bad. But there is a terrible condition called spinal muscle atrophy, mm-hmm. where the muscles of the spine and elsewhere don't mature, and the baby can die before they're two years old. Wow. And they're born a perfectly normal baby and you, and you don't really notice anything. If you knew what was going on, by 10 days you could look carefully and say, oh, yeah, I think I can see this very obscure symptom, but really you just don't pick anything. Mm. And so you know when newborn babies are born, the medical system stabs them in the heel to get some blood mm-hmm. and they put that on blotting paper. And we don't just test for stuff like thyroid disease and phenylketonuria, which is bad for your brain, but also for this genetic disease and we can fix it. And there's two dozen diseases. And I had no idea until about a week ago. Wow. And there's two dozen diseases that we can fix in Australia with genetic, you know, the genetic diseases. And there's a couple more coming. And so far we've saved 40 lives in Australia. So there's 40 <gasps> families that are happy with their baby. And and basically what they do, they, they one in 50 people carry the gene for spinal muscle atrophy. So one in 10,000 babies get born with it. And what you do is you get a bit of adenovirus and you fill around with it. You scrape out the inside of it and you just left with this hollow cylinder. And then you shove the right sort of DNA in there, inject it into the bloodstream. It goes inside the nerve body, inside the nerve nucleus, and then gets red and they're fixed. And I'm just thinking... How happy those families must be that yeah. their, their baby's not dying. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, I, I just thought I'd start with a good news story. Totally. This, and, and the sun shining as well. There's some more good news. Okay. Well, look, you're feeling posy <laughs> vibes this morning, Dr. Carl, and that's yeah. an amazing story. We can check out more. Is there much online about this that oh, we can get into? I'm doing a podcast on it on shirtloads of science, mm-hmm. um, and it'll come out in a few weeks' time. Um Yes, yeah, so, so hang in there. It's a, it's a very positive story. Good. Shirtloads of science. You can check it out wherever you get your podcasts. And we're going to start off here with Tynan in Torquay. Tynan, you've noticed something after you go for a surf. What's going on? Yeah, g'day, guys. So sometimes after I go for a surf, it can be an hour or so later, um, even later on, whenever I bend over, water will pour out of my nose. I can blow it as hard as I want, but whenever I lower my head, the water will seem to find a way to run out. Ah, oh, thank God this has happened to somebody else. Does this happen to you, Lucy? I think so, yeah, maybe. Maybe yeah. not the... I always find in the ear it comes out hours ah. later. Now, now, Tynan, uh, is this related to you getting sort of tossed around a bit in the surf? 
Yeah, I'm not a very good surfer, so I find myself under the water a bit doing the tumbles. <laughs> right. So um, I've had this happen, and in my case what happens is that I go for a swim, toss around in the surf, come home, have a shower. About an hour later, and we're having around a cup of tea and the guests and some the royal family, I don't know who they are, and uh, we've got the best tea out, and I'll lean forward over the table Mate, about 10 litres just come pouring. Okay. <laughs> like a big blob the size of my thumb comes pouring out like a thick stream. It just comes out and mate, it keeps on coming and it lands on the table. Is that what happens to you, Dr. Tynan? Yeah, I, I go give the dolls a kiss in the head and, yeah, she ends up getting washed out. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So w- what you have in your head to help keep it lighter, we think, are what are called sinuses, S-I-N-U-S. And a sinus is a cavity that has only one opening. In, you go in, you go out the same way, right? And so you've got them underneath your cheekbones, underneath your eyes, and then in your forehead. And these sinuses, um, evolution is not perfect, just good enough. And you would think that the drain point for these sinuses would be at the lowest point in the sinus. But no, we evolved from sort of hanging around on all fours to standing upright. And so the drain point is above the lowest point. Yeah. Bit of a diversion here. With certain brands of the sports car called the MG, the British car in the past, the drain point was about 10 centimetres higher than the lowest point in the boot. And so if it rained, you'd be driving around with a swimming pool in your boot and, and it would leak. Yes, okay. Getting, getting back to the sinuses. So when you lean forward, the, the, then it can drain out. And I don't know why there's that delay because I'm sure in that hour before, between when I went for a shower and then the sinus comes out, I'm sure that I must have bent forward but the water doesn't come out, and I do not know why. And if there's an anatomist or an ENT person, can they possibly ring in and tell us? But So that's what's happening with you, Dr Tynan. It's just the stuff in your sinuses. Getting trapped in the sinus, but then this delayed flushing. Yeah. Why is it? Yeah, yeah. And you're, you're, I'm so glad that somebody else has it. Yeah, 0439 757 We'll see what you can do, Tynan. We've got Tash in the Yarra Valley. Tash... You are kind of having a bit of a tussle with your boss at the moment. What's happening? Hey, yeah, I'm a cabinet maker. Like, we're probably in... Oh, Tash, have I got you? And every single morning I want to have the roller door open so I can look outside and um, see the view and watch the sunrise. And my boss and his son are way too cold and they don't want the roller door open. So whereas I'm fine and wearing maybe just one more layer than them... They're freezing. Like, ah. what, what, what's the difference? Why, why am I so much warmer than them? Okay. Uh, in general, women are uh, shorter than men and therefore have a higher ratio, and here comes a fancy term, of surface area to body mass. So yeah. if you've got a tiny droplet of water, it will radiate its heat out pretty rapidly because it's got a lot of surface area. If you've got a big droplet of water in compared to its mass... The surface area is not so much, so much. Uh, the surface area is, is lower, so it won't radiate so much heat. So, in general, on average, women tend to feel the cold more simply because they've got more surface area than men on average. But then there are a whole bunch of other things. Now we've got the hard physics out of the way. Uh, second, second thing is if you have more muscle. And men, on average, tend to have more muscle than women. That's the testosterone thing. And by the way, women also have testosterone, but at a level about 10 to 20 times lower than men, reaches its peak uh, in the early 20s, gradually drops during life and then comes back up high again to previous female levels around 70. So if you have more muscle, 
that runs at a high metabolic rate and generates more heat. That's then part of your overall metabolism. And if you've, for example, gone for a run in the morning before you went to work, then your metabolic rate will be a little bit higher for a little bit longer. Circulation, if you've got um, better circulation, you'll lose more heat through your skin. What you want is that your skin gets cold, but you keep the heat inside. But the trouble with that is you've got temperature sensors in your skin. So even though you're warmer on the inside, you feel colder. Okay, another little diversion here. Cold hands, warm heart is women. On average, mm. compared to men, women have colder skin but a slightly higher inter- internal temperature. And so in, on, mm. so on average, women can feel the cold more because the temperature sensors in the skin are saying it's cold, but internally they're, they're warmer. And then uh, you mentioned the other thing, more clothes. So, so what do you do in the factory? Are you, are you a tradie? Uh, yeah, yeah, we just knock up kitchens and um, stuff for the houses, basically. Ah, so were you trained as a chippy or a cabinet maker? Yeah, a cabinet maker. Oh, my and, God. Yeah, usually, usually I'm the warmer one out of the three of us. They're both taller than me, and we're probably all around the same weight as well. But, yeah, generally I'm the warmer one out of us. Don't have a good explanation for that, um, but I'm so thrilled to be talking to a cabinet maker because a cabinet maker is a very high level of skill. <laughs> I do enjoy it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Tash, you just need to tell them to harden up. Oh, that's a I, bit yeah. Mean. <laughs> <laughs> I've tried that, it doesn't work. <laughs> there's, there's another factor that on average makes women feel the cold more, which is that with regard to being a fertile woman and, and losing a bit of blood, that means that they tend to have a little bit more anemia mm. and that tends to make you feel the cold more. So. The straight answer is I don't have a good answer except for the fact that maybe you're wearing more clothes and you're sensible. Well, that's the thing. Sometimes, you know, this is obviously a different environment, but you hear of that phenomena where uh, women in office buildings are just freezing and because the air con's been turned up, but the men in the office are okay. Boo the patriarchy. Yes. Because that one's because the air conditioning is set to a 1970 standard where women would wear lighter dresses, whereas men would wear a three-piece suit. So the whole of modern air conditioning is set to a 1970 standard of a 70-kilogram male uh, in the corner office with all the glass mm. and the women in the secretarial pool all working away in their summer dresses with the air blasting down on them cold so that him in the corner office with the sun shining and his three-piece suit will be comfy. Who's oh. a patriarchy? Okay, I've gone a bit over the top, lefty wokey. <laughs> Come on down, newspapers attack me for it. Go ahead. You're listening to Science with Dr Carl. We've got Sophie in Queensland. Now, Sophie, you noticed something when you were camping recently. It was real cold. What happened? Yeah, I woke up in the morning and there was a pretty heavy frost covering everything, my table and all that I left out. And I'd left a couple of pots out and one of them had water in it. And I noticed the water inside had frozen, but on the outside of the pot, no frost had developed on all, whereas I had an empty pot next to it that had developed frost on the top. So I was wondering what the reason behind that is. Ah, okay. So the pot that we're talking about, it had some water in it, did it? Yeah, it probably had like a reasonable amount of water. Okay, and so there was maybe one-third full or one-quarter full, something like that, ballpark figure? Yeah, probably about that, yeah. Okay, and then the frost had appeared on the inside of the pot, but not the outside. Yeah, so it frozen on the inside, but, yeah, nothing on the outside like everything else. Okay, so, so no no frosting on the outside or condensation. Right. Um, yeah. 
So I'm trying to come up with an answer, and I think I've got one, but I really need the physicists to ring in and help me if I've got the right answer. So I'm working this out in my head as I go along. It goes like this. So water is made of molecules, H2O, which look like little boomerangs, and they jiggle around. So there's all these little boomerangs. 104.5 degrees is the angle of the boomerang, and they're jiggling around. And they don't all jiggle at the same amount of jiggle. They have an average jiggle. Some move fast and some move slow. So even when the temperature is just above zero, some of them are jiggling at a temperature corresponding to 100 degrees centigrade. Very few, like maybe one in a million. But there are so many trillions of them that, firstly, some of the water molecules are jiggling at a high speed corresponding to being hot and being able to evaporate. And secondly, the coincidence is that they're doing this jiggling when they're at the surface of the water. They can then break away. They break away, they move into the air, and then immediately they're hit entirely by cold air around them. Um, They then condense on the side of the pot, and as they condense, they go into a lower state of energy, they give off heat, and that keeps the outside just a little bit warmer so that it doesn't develop frost on the outside. This is not the best explanation in the world, but I would like any physicist to give me a better explanation. So, and, and by the way, this is how come... When you get water at 20 degrees C and you leave it out in a shallow bowl, by the end of the day it's all gone, mm. even though the temperature at no stage, the average temperature never gets above 100, above 20 degrees C. Individual water molecules do reach that speed corresponding to 100 degrees C and break, break loose. And then the average temperature of the water drops a little bit, maybe to 19.9, and then the sunlight hits it back up to 20. And so gradually you end up with at no time the water reaching more than 20 degrees C, but it's all gone by the end of the day mm. because the individual water molecules can have a whole range of jiggles which corresponds to, or jiggling speed, which corresponds to a whole range of temperatures. And it's the hot ones that can break loose. This is very observant of you, Dr. Sophie. Mm. I'm very impressed. Was it, was it really cold, in the, like de, de, uh, just above zero where you were? Uh, I think it might have been below zero. Oh, my God. Did you have a proper sleeping bag and everything? Yes, I was in a swag with a nice thick, thick sleeping oh, bag. I love the swag. Was it a single swag or a double swag? A uh, double swag. Oh, mate, they're the best thing in the world. And it's got a little waterproof cover so you can just stay out in the open and not have to have a separate tent? Uh, it can stay out in the open, yeah. It's pretty well seasoned and waterproofed. It's withstand some pretty heavy rain. So I just love the swag for outback travel because you just unroll the swag and there's your bed for the night. None of these poles and everything else. You just got everything in one go. <laughs> Ready to go. Well, if you have any follow-up, 0439757555, text in. We've got Lance in coughs right now. Lance, you're kind of staying in the cold weather. What's going on? Oh, good day. Um, just saying something about the ice in Greenland expanding like massively, ice and snow, I think, um, and something a couple of months back about the same thing in Antarctica. I just want to know if... Dr. Cullen knows anything about it? Uh, Overwhelmingly, we are losing ice at around a billion tonnes a year. There are little bumps here and there. So um, you get different water flow uh, and different air flow. So while overall Antarctica is losing ice, there are a few inland areas where the air currents are such that they're bringing in water vapour. But overwhelmingly, the average is year to year, that both Iceland and Greenland are losing massive amounts of ice. Um, Sometimes you you find one tiny area where there is some more ice being laid down, 
but that is overwhelmed by the amount that we're losing. And that's a bit that's reported by the climate denialist press. Yeah, right. But okay. can, can you, have you got the original article there? Can you chase it up for us? No, it? no, mate. It was, it was just something I seen on the interweb. Ah. Oh. No, it's grand, but it said it was like a massive amount. That's why I queried it. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry. The, the fossil fuel companies, well, the whole world knew that global warming was real in 1990. You see, the scientists thought it was real around in the early 1980s. The insurance companies knew it was real in 1973. And then they started charging more for insurance premiums for weather-related events. But the scientists needed a higher burden of proof. And they were pretty convinced by the early 1980s. But with science, you can't just look at the past and say, this fits our model. You've then got to make projections for the future. Mm. And so in the early 1980s, they started making projections saying, this is what our models are saying. And by 1990, uh, enough of them had come true. They said, yeah, it's, it's definitely real. It's caused by carbon dioxide. And the latest I heard just this morning was that unless we do something serious, which we can do, uh, that we will lose the ice in the Arctic by 2050, mm. but we don't want to have that happen. And we can reverse it. I've written a little ABC book, Dr. Carl's little book, Climate Change Science, 10 bucks cheap, a paperback. Uh, we can fix it. I was going to say, I was going to plug that. You oh, know, if you, if you want to go and you... You really do that so well, Dr. Carl. You kind of map out by dates exactly the the process of, of discovery, if mm. that makes sense, and then that process of avoidance as well. So Dr. Carl's little book of climate science, it's fabulous. And as an example, even recently, tobacco company executives get up in the American Senate and say, we have never come across any advice that says that tobacco smoking can be bad for your health. And they're just lying like a pig in their own filth. Mm-hmm. Nothing Not personal. Good. It's just business. Dr. Carl with you on Triple J answering your science questions. And we've got Susan in Sydney. Now, Susan, you've noticed something about the lack of, I guess, dirt animals they're seeing. What, what have you kind of noticed? Well, I do a long-distance um, endurance riding sport on horseback. Where wow. I'm riding what, what sort of distances? For, um, well, at the weekend I did 160 kilometres. What? Imbolc. What? How long does that yes. take? Um, well, the winner did it in eight hours and 45 minutes of riding time. I did it in 13 hours and 45 minutes. Wow. wow. And then there's some people who took 20 hours. How many breaks does the horse need across yeah. 13 hours? Uh, four. They get four breaks. Oh, Wow. Dang. And how about you? I mean, you and, you and a horse have to work together and look after each other. How do you feel yeah. after that? Yeah, well, they do vet checks um, at each Ooh. one of our breaks. So, yes, yeah, the horse um, have a very um, strict um, parameters that they have to recover to before they're allowed to continue. But luckily they don't do that for the riders. Oh, come on, I was about to say, do they have a compulsory Susan check? <laughs> mm. <laughs> no, luckily they don't, otherwise I would not get through. Wow, that's so imp- – sorry to interrupt you, but that's yeah, so impressive, yeah. Susan. Yeah. Dr. Susan? But uh, – but- but so we, we cover a lot of different terrain. If we go over farmland, I might see, you know, dead bodies of sheep or cattle or, you know, their skeletal remains. But then, and I know that, you know, there's a rumour that um, dogs and cats, if they want to die, they might try and creep off somewhere and die quietly, privately. But when I'm in the bush, I'm going through bush tracks and literally never see uh, a carcass or a skeleton of a wombat or a, a kangaroo or a bird, nothing. There's no dead bodies in the bush. Why is that so? Where do wild, where do wild animals go to die? Mm. Ah, well, the poet Tennyson uh, came up with this wonderful phrase, something like, nature is red or bloody in tooth and claw. And 
sure, if I want to get some food and I'm a lion, I'll go and chase something down. But if there's some dead food, I'll just save effort. So anything gets recycled really quickly. And I've spoken with um, bushwalkers who have gone out and then come back on the same route. And on the way out, they've seen a freshly dead bird just at the side of the track. And when they come back a few hours later, they look out for it and they see that it's been shifted and it's practically all gone. So the animals have come along, dragged off to one side, and then successive waves of animals go through and pick out what bits that they're specialised for. And I guess all the time you've got the bacteria going away in the background, but in the short term, it's just that they're free food and they're not, nobody's going to waste that. And I'm guessing that in the open, where the land has been, what do you call, cultivated or cleared, then the predators would be too much of a target themselves. But in a bush, if they can just sort of hide under a bush and eat the um, uh, pigeon or whatever, then they're likely not to be disturbed and get away with it. We've got Genevieve here. Now, Genevieve, you're in Perth. What's your question for Carl? In what state of matter is electricity, a solid, a liquid or a gas? Wow. That is really tricky. So when I went to school... I was taught that there are only three states of matter and those states of matter were solid, liquid and gas. And so a solid is fixed in terms of volume and shape. You get a block of ice, you put it in the middle of an empty floor and an empty room, it just sits there, same volume, same shape. Then you can move up with a bit of extra heat to the next state of matter from solid, you can go to liquid. It warms up. It has the same volume, but now it can take the shape of the room. The atoms are kind of not so much stuck to each other as they were in the solid, but they're still talking to each other. They're they're married to each other. They need each other. They interact. So that's a second state of matter, a liquid, where it takes whatever shape is around it, but it still has the same volume. When you add more energy, you move into the gas state. And there, the atoms are still kind of linked to each other, but very loosely. They can take up the volume of the whole room and and they can take up the shape of the whole room. And if you heat it up more, yep, you can take it even further uh, and turn it into a plasma. Now, it turns out that most of the universe, most of the atoms in the universe are in a plasma. Um, that's what the stars are in. So the stars make up most of the visible mass of the universe um, and they are a plasma where the electrons have been ripped loose off the nuclei and so you've got the cores of the atoms floating around in a sea of electrons and that's the fourth state of matter. And there are other states of matter like Bose-Einstein condensates, B-O-S-E hyphen Einstein E-I-N-S-T-E-I-N, where you've got a bunch of atoms all be, or, or particles all behaving like they're one large particle. So you might have five trillion individual particles and they're behaving like one. And you can have something similar called a fermionic condensate and you can have other weird states of matter like quark, gluon, plasma and the stuff inside neutron stars. But getting back to electricity, on one hand, you can think of electricity as just being electrons moving in a wire. And that's kind of true. And that doesn't really fit into the solid state liquid thing or into any of the other things I mentioned. But it turns out that most of the energy travels in the space around the wire. 
So electricity is, is like a, a, a separate state of matter? Is, is that hap- Am I helping you or confusing you, Dr Genevieve? Kind of both. <laughs> it, it, it is complicated, but, but it is good to realise that not everything fits into a category that we'd like it to fit into to make things easy. So what do you reckon? Solid, liquid or gas? Neither. It's um, another state of matter where the energy, where it is energy moving through space, but the, only a very small amount of the energy is in the wire. And you can tell that in winter when you plug in a little heater and you can feel the wire going between the power point and the heater getting warm. Mm. But there's more energy travelling in the air, in the space around it, whether there's air or not. And you think, how can an energy travel through into space? Well, that's how energy gets from the sun to us. There's no metal wires joining it, but we get about one kilowatt per square metre uh, coming from the sun towards us. And what state of matter is that? So mm-hmm. maybe it, it is what it is, and we're trying to put a false descriptor onto it. You know, we try, uh, I don't know. You've tapped into some big territory, Genevieve. Do you like science? Yeah. Thanks, Genevieve. Thank We've got you, the Genevieve. make Michaela on the Gold Coast. Now, Michaela, you've noticed something when you're looking at your fingers. Yeah. Uh, my question is, why does your finger go like a pinkish red once you put a torch under it? Ah, because um, it doesn't absorb all the light. So if you've got a very weak light, um, only a very small number of photons come out and they get absorbed in the flesh. But if you've got a bright light, like a modern LED torch, where you've got a very small part that's emitting the light and a lot of it's coming out, and if you get your finger in the beam, you can see that, in fact, your skin, your body is not totally opaque, but it is partially transparent or translucent. So um, with a really bright light, you can actually see the bones in the finger. Oh, cool. Yeah. So it's just a matter of getting a bright enough light. Uh, in the old days, the, the lights used to be full of heat. So there was a, used to be a thing called the incandescent light bulb or the tungsten light bulb, and they had the wrong name. They're actually called, they should have been called heat bulbs because if you put 100 units of energy in, 95 came out as heat and only five came out as light. But with an LED, it's the other way around. So you can get a very bright light and look at your hand. You should be able to see, if you get a really bright one, you should be able to see the bones in the palm of your hand if you've got a bright enough one. And thanks to the modern technology, you won't burn yourself with that small amount of heat that's also travelling at the same time. That's so cool. Yeah, and you can also use this to work out the oxygenation level in your skin so your smartphone or various wrist exercise things will shine down a light of different frequencies which will then interact with the haemoglobin and then energy will come back and they'll analyse that and work out whether you're 95% saturated with oxygen or, or 99 or unfortunately 90, which is bad. So that technology is around now just on ordinary commercial devices. Oh, my gosh. Isn't it what a, what, are we, what, a, what a world we live in. We've got Vanessa in Torquay. A couple of questions from Torquay this morning. What do you want to know? Oh, hi. Um, I, so I'm a bit of a surfer. And uh, so as part of that, I pay a bit of attention to the tides. Mm-hmm. And um, I've just come back from Western Australia. And most places in Australia, I've noticed, have uh, two tides, which is pretty normal. But I noticed that over in Margaret River, they only had one tide a day. And I wanted to know why that is. Ah. Okay. Um, this was a real surprise to me when I was in the top left-hand corner, top right-hand corner of Australia in the Gulf of Carpentaria. And down in Karumba, K-A-R-U-M-B-A, there's only one tide a day. 
And I said, what was this one tie today? And they said, yeah, you only get one tie today. And it turns out that there are different places in the world that have this. And I got my further information from the National Tidal Centre in Flinders University in South Australia. And I spoke with them on the phone and they sent me some papers. And this whole one tide, two tide thing a day, what happens is uh, imagine you've got the earth as a solid steel ball that doesn't change shape, which is close enough. And then you've got a thin layer of water which is being pulled upon by the sun. So the water will sort of bulge towards the sun a bit, but then you throw in the moon and the earth spins on its own axis once every day. The moon goes around once every 24, sorry, once every month or month. So you've got these two different things, the sun and the moon going around the earth, apparently. And you end up with about 120 tides, okay? Oh, wow. Yeah. So um, then depending on the local geometry of the Earth-Moon-Sun system and whether you've got a continent in the way or whether you've got a long sloping inlet. So in the top left-hand corner of Australia, you've got Derby. Now, what's the place? Broome, which has got nine-metre tides. And if you go 200 kilometres north, you've got Derby, where there are 12-metre tides. And I I go there every time I can with the family, and they're really interested for the first hour, and with the water sort of pouring in like a fire hose, you know, raising two metres per hour. Oh, my God. And then they get bored, and then we have to go. So... um, so with regard to Margaret River, oh, sorry, wait a sec, with regard to the tides, most of the energy around the world, about 90% of the energy is in the two tides per day. But there's a okay. small amount of energy in the one tide per day cycle and then it goes from one and two all the way up to about 120 and then the numbers begin to fall off so it's really small. And you have places like Tahiti, which is at a place called an amphidrome, A-M-P-H-I-D-R-O-M-E, which means that there's no tide. Have, have you surfed that big wave there? What do they call it? Wapo? I'm definitely not a big wave surfer, so no. <laughs> but you, you know the one I mean, which is a... I know, I know the one, yeah, yeah. Okay, so with regard to what's happening at Margaret River, I'm guessing that it's because of the ge- geometry of the Earth and the Moon and not what's happening at Kurumba. In Kurumba, what happens in the Gulf of Carpentaria is that the one yeah. tide... Uh, 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 the way the system is set up, you would have two tides a day, but the water goes up the rivers and it goes up just mm-hmm. far enough that when it, it comes back at low tide and turns a low tide into a no tide. Mm-hmm. So sometimes you can have the geometry of the Earth, Moon, Sun, or sometimes you can have local effects like water coming up rivers and coming back. I don't know which is the one at Margaret River. I'm sorry, I failed you. No, that's that's all good. That that helped answer my question. Thank you. And are you a short wave, short board or long board? I'm a long boarder. Oh, <laughs> nice. You're so uh, yeah. Thanks, this, Vanessa. Wow, a lot, had, of, lot of people with hobbies. And yeah, and, and and skills like we've had a cabinet maker and somebody who rides a horse a million kilometres a day. Yeah, long and, distance. And then somebody who rides. Oh my God, surfers, oh. two surfers, in fact. Wow. Dr. Manch. What do you want to know? Dr. Carl, Dr. Lucy, how are you? Good. Good. Look, my question is, I went to Splendour in the Grass last year. It was a beautiful mud fest. <laughs> had a banger of the time washing out in the mud. I had a thought, though, in the violent Soho pit. Does the ground collect all the beautiful juices from Splendour's gone by, you know, all the alcohol, grog spilt all over the ground, bits of old toon rags dashed in, in questionable powders, but also, I guess, a bit of peas in there as, as well. Does this all come back up when it gets muddy, or does the ground wash it down the soil profile and only fresh rain is in there? Wow. So what we need is a ground hydrographer type person. And by the way, the reason we think that happened, and it just came through in Nature magazine, 
on the 10th of May this year that the big bushfires of 2019-2020 put so much pollution into the air that they significantly cooled down the Pacific more than previously and set off the three La Ninas in a row. So the people being in New South Wales, Victoria and Queensland, tens of thousands of people evacuated from their houses, um, uh, half a dozen people dead, billions of dollars cost. It was all due to global warming. Uh, in this case, the bushfires set off the rain. And so you had the, the ground just got soaked. So it all depends what's underneath. If there's clay the uh, pollutants won't get through it. If there's anything else, it'll go straight through into the water table. And so if you've got something like an orange dye and fluorescein is what they use, which the optometrist or eye doctor will put into your eye, which then lights up with ultraviolet, but they also use it in water tracking. So you could put some fluorescein into the water and then three months later, it might appear in a local river downstream. Mm. And so you can say there's a connection. So I would reckon overwhelmingly that the atoms of whatever people sweat out, you know, there's a lot of dancing and and, and breathing out. Um, Oh, breathing out. Okay. I've got a little carbon dioxide monitor that I use to tell me what are my chances of picking up an infectious disease from somebody in a confined space. And so I use it as a proxy for how good the ventilation is. And normally when it's 420 parts per million, uh, which is the background, um, my chance, the amount of rebreathed air is very low. When it's about 2,000 parts per million, which happens in aeroplanes about 10 minutes after they shut the doors, 4% of all the air coming into my lungs came out of another person's lungs. Wow. So the wow. Ad- wow, 4%. The air goes round and round. So on one sense... Each time you take a breath, you are breathing in, and assuming that the air is well mixed, you are breathing in molecules put out by Adolf Hitler, Joan of Arc, um, Napoleon, Julius Caesar, dinosaurs. It all goes round and round. So the stuff, to answer your question, Manch, that's in the ground, it will flow away downhill, pushed by successive rains. And if it's dry, then some of it will go into the air as a bit of a you know, dry particle mist. We've got Lars in Catherine. Lars, what's your question? I just had a question about um, uh, submarines and why you wouldn't use titanium and carbon fibre when you're building them. Uh, uh, Yes, people have been talking about this with regard to potential failure. And let me introduce you to a new word, uh, sorry, an old word, but in a new modality. And that word is creep. So you might think of you creeping quietly into a room not to wake up somebody, you know, you want to give them a cup of tea or something in the morning. Or you might talk about somebody being a real creep, a nasty person. But also creep refers to, and I came across it at the creep laboratory when I was working at the steelworks. They actually have a laboratory called the creep laboratory. (laughs) And what you do is you get steel and you warm it up. You don't get it melty, no way. You just get it up to maybe 100 degrees centigrade and you put a weight on it and blow me down, it creeps. It begins to flow. So with regard to putting different materials together, um, there's on one hand, what you're really worried about is they shift with regard to temperature. So at 100 degrees C, they might behave differently from what they do at zero degrees C. But in a case of having a submarine that goes down four kilometres, you're worried more about pressure. And so titanium will, of course, creep a little bit. And probably reversibly, and we'll probably come back to what it was, and titanium fibre will creep at a different rate. If they both creep at the same rate, 
if they both you know shift their dimensions with regard to pressure, there's no problems. But if one creeps more or less than the other, mm. then you've got a potential gap appearing. And that's one way of thinking that people are looking at with regard to using dissimilar materials under extreme conditions. We've got one final question. Do you reckon you can answer it in a minute? Give it out. Henry. Henry, welcome. What do you want to know? Um, why is diesel clear? Why is diesel fluid clear? It doesn't have... Oh, okay, so with most hydrocarbon liquids such as petrol, they add a dye so you can tell what grade it is. So um, super or 91 grade is different from uh, 94, which is different from 95, which is different from 98, and they've added a specific dye to it. Now, the I'm guessing that with diesel, when you say you look at it, is it totally transparent like water? Oh, yeah. Okay, I, I guess they haven't added something to it, but maybe the smell is enough. Uh, I've tried asking the clever people in physics why glass is clear, and they jump back from me as though I am an agent of the devil, and they say, stand back, you know not what you ask, you spawn of Satan. That's much too complicated. So I'll just bow out at this stage and have it as homework for next week. Okay. So have a listen, Dr. Henry, and I'll see if I can find out why diesel is clear why next week. is diesel clear? Why Thanks, Henry. Clear? Thank you, Dr. Yep. Henry. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of Science with Dr. Carl and make sure you are subscribed to the Science with Dr. Carl fam so you're the first to know when we've got a new episode ready in your feed. I'm Lucy Smith. This episode was produced by Lou Hill and we'll catch you next week. Dave Marchese here from the Triple J Hack team. Hey, if you love Dr. Carl's podcast like I do, you might enjoy the Hack podcast as well. Each day we bring you the news that matters to you, from the latest science on climate change to what's happening in politics and news around the world. The Hack Podcast. It's your daily fix of the news you need to know. Get it wherever you're listening now.